This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. On this week's PreserveCast, we're talking with Jim Hyde, author of Building Small, a toolkit for real estate entrepreneurs, civic leaders, and great communities. We'll be looking at how building small is a tool for developers to integrate socially responsible, economically resilient, and authentic placemaking, and how this style of development and thinking can be used to accelerate historic rehabs. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we're very excited to be talking with Jim Hyde, who, uh, in addition to being an infill developer and working on sustainable development, um, also is the author of Building Small, a toolkit for real estate entrepreneurs, civic leaders, and great communities, um, many of which uh, fall in the category of people who listen to PreserveCast and um, of great interest to the work that's being done to many of our listeners and and the, the work that they're doing all across the country. So um, excited to talk with Jim um, and kind of get to know him a little bit first. So where'd you grow up and what led you to this kind of work at the intersection of real estate and architecture and development? What, what was your, uh, what was your spark moment and your first job in the field? Yeah. So I grew up in the Northeast and, uh, actually Pittsburgh is where I was born. And, uh, as, as I was thinking about this, um, I remember, you know, the first 10 years of my life, my mom would always start. We lived in a little steel town outside of Pittsburgh, but my the big thing was always to go into town for Christmas. And I would always loved driving by the old buildings, even though they were very disheveled. There was just all these cool industrial buildings and old buildings. And then we moved to uh, Albany and I found the same thing. A lot of these really cool old mills and downtown brownstones in Albany that were, again, had lost lost interest and been disinvested. But there was something in them that always spoke to me and uh, went, to, went to school, stumbled into landscape architecture, uh, worked for uh, back he came back east went to school actually in idaho and then came back east and worked for a couple of years in new england uh, as a landscape architect doing a lot of urban design work got to understand that um but i think the big you know the the, the i guess the turning point for me was i about 15 years into my career felt that most of this stuff i was designing never got built and it was kind of like hmm what is it i don't understand about my clients or what they're facing or whatever else i went back and did masters in real estate development and i have to tell students for me that was like learning a foreign language design school there's all this kind of jargon and subjective stuff that you learn and suddenly there was this whole world that opened up about how people make decisions based on finance internal rates of return and raising capital and so it was a real it was a real game changer for me and allowed me to kind of take my passion around older buildings and stuff and then actually start to execute projects and do things the way that I thought they should be done and also learn why some of the things that we all would like to see happen are either so hard to do or just not feasible. So I think when a lot of people hear the word developer, well, people hear the word developer, they think a lot of different things. Um, but I think generally they, not good. Yeah, generally not good. <laughs> but even when they think of a preservation developer, they think sort of like what you described, like, you know, okay, we're going to redo an entire mill complex or a giant old building or things like that. And uh, you've you've been able to kind of focus in on a on a different type of scale of project, oftentimes. 
um, which is, you know, the sort of this more, which we're going to talk about with your book, but this kind of this idea of like small scale infill and the, the fabric of that, how, you know, for people listening, I mean, maybe first, why did you kind of do that instead of the more traditional, you know, I'm going to go in and do the old factory, uh, project. So let's start there. What, why? And then maybe we'll talk about the challenges associated with that. Yeah, so, so, you know, the path to small, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit ironic because, you know, as I said, trained as a landscape architect, went, did the thing, then came back and did a lot of consulting, often sitting between the developer and the design team, kind of translating back and forth. But most of the work I was doing at that time was really big stuff. I mean, 10,000 acres in the Nevada desert, you know, working over in Abu Dhabi. And so um, in a lot of ways, I should be talking about big, but what I found was it was kind of after we would do our daily work sessions or whatever else, or these big projects, I would always find myself gravitating towards these kind of what I call the nooks and crannies of places. It's the little back alleys, the cool little adaptive reuse that became a, you know, the gas station that became a beer garden or you know food hall or whatever else. And I just really got fascinated with how much you can do with very little space, very little building, very small parcel. And more importantly, the people who were driving these conversations and doing these projects. So, um, and, you know, it became the the basis of the book because I wanted to tell that story. The stuff that I saw was so, you know, uh, important to the fabric of communities. But and then I wanted to understand, okay, is this is this just kind of cool or does this stuff really matter and does it make a difference? And, you know, we can talk about it later, but, it, you know, it makes a big difference and I think it's really important and yet was not getting much attention from, in a lot of ways, civic leaders because they all wanted the home run. They wanted the big, you know, two-block project to come in and fix everything as opposed to curating a bunch of little projects. And the, the the challenge associated with it, it seems more challenging just because you don't have as, as – uh, the, the margins aren't quite as big when you're dealing with a really small little building. Is it as challenging as it sounds and is it or, – or are there ways of making it work? Uh, you know, there's, I mean, there's, there's challenges and there's incredible joy and opportunities that come out of it. And is, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot in the book is, and the book was drawn from this thing that I do called the small scale developer forum, which is a twice a year gathering of people in this space. And we go to a different city and we see projects and we hear from developers and we hear from policymakers. And it was really their stories and the things that I've seen that kind of drove me to write the book as a way to tell that story. But the common thread in all of that is, yes, it's, it's, it is hard. Um, Pound for pound, you know, ounce of blood for ounce of blood, it's more work than big because you just have less uh, outcome to amortize, whether it's the intellectual cost, emotional cost, financial cost over. But it also, what we see, the people that are involved in this, it's a much more, I would say, tactile approach to building and impacting your community because you really get to, you know, you get to touch every piece of it. And so... These projects are highly curated, you know, have a unique story to tell. They're constantly evolving. Um, they have a lot of personality. And I use the word soul a lot because I think they are the things that define and help uh, keep a community's soul and character. So um, there's an enormous amount of an enormous amount of gratification, and that's that's why I do it. But the capital is hard, the approvals are hard, the construction is hard. I mean, it's all hard. And again, you're 
you're dealing with 10,000 square feet instead of, you know, 100,000 or a million square feet, which at some point that, you know, it's, uh, that's just a matter of scale. It's, um, you know, more, more efficient when you get to the bigger size. Yeah. It seems like it's always the same amount of work. Um, <laughs> we mm-hmm. at Preservation Maryland, which powers PreserveCast, we, we just wrapped up a sub 1000 square foot log cabin. And I, I swear it's just much work as a million square foot, um, property. There's just a lot less money to be made. Um, absolutely. (laughs) So let's talk about the book. Um, so you've got a new book building small, a toolkit for real estate entrepreneurs, civic leaders, and great communities. Where did the, why the book, we're going to talk about the next forum for small scale developers. Um, so people listening who are interested in this or perhaps do some small scale development might, uh, participate in that. But uh, where did the, the kind of the concept come from and maybe we can define sort of what you mean by building small and, and what the, what the toolkit is. Yeah. So the short backstory, as I mentioned, is I do these forums and the forums really grew out of, I've been very involved for years with the Urban Land Institute. It's an organization that, you know, I have a great, great respect for and a lot of appreciation, but was watching as a lot of its content got more and more focused on big projects and big capital. And so started the forum with the, uh, organization support to try and reach a different audience, which I thought were people who might be coming into development or wanting to work within their communities. And very quickly found this, you know, we've had about 400 people now participate in these forums, people who, you know, they don't want to build big, they want to build small. And so again, it was their stories, it was the impact, it was the challenges, it was the benefits that as we would go to these different places, uh, they were just so moving. Uh, and also so frustrating. It was like, you know, somebody's got to tell this story. So the book grew out of that. Um, and at the same time, I was starting my own projects. And so one of the things that I often say is if I had finished the book on time, it would have been a very different book because the two years, the two extra years that I took to write it, I was doing my own projects and I learned kind of the personal challenges, let alone some of the technical challenges of building small that, um, yeah, really go into it. So the book is really meant it's for two audiences. It's for the entrepreneur that wants to do this as their life's work or get started in it. But it's also for civic leaders and even citizens that say, you know, this is what we want in our community. You know, we want stuff that's smaller. We want more fine grain. We want more, you know, adaptive reuse of existing buildings uh, as a way to communicate to them how most of the rules and regs and approvals processes work against what they're saying they want. And if they truly want this, there are things that the average citizen and the civic leaders need to do to make this, as we talked about earlier, easier rather than harder than big, so that more people are able to step in and and make it happen. Sort of reminds me of the difference between uh, large-scale ag, you know, growing wheat on a thousand-acre field versus doing row crops, um, you know, and growing carrots. And it's it's funny because... We need carrots just as much, if not more, than we need wheat. Um, but nobody wants to incentivize the carrot grower, um, yeah. and that's a very hard, hard thing to do. Just like small scale ag. So, what, what are the? I mean, if if you don't mind, and people can pick up the book, we'll put a link in the show notes, not only to Jim's website but to the to the book itself. But you know, like, what do you see as the biggest barriers? You know, you've you've worked across the country. You've worked with developers from across the country. Is there a common theme if you're? Uh, revitalization king for a day, you're going to change three things. What are those three things that are like 
these are barriers that communities can change that make it make it really work. Yeah, it, yeah, it's, it, absolutely. And and we've done the forums in urban centers. We've done them in emerging urban areas. We've done them in suburban corridors. When we've done them in rural communities. And I, I mean, interestingly, the two barriers are the same no matter where you go. And it starts with capital and it ends with regulations. Uh, so the capital side is challenging because, like we talked about the level of effort, it's a lot easier to make one $100 million loan than it is $101 million loans. So the need to find an alternative way to capitalize small is really critical. I think crowdfunding is an interesting opportunity that is just starting you know, kind of a nascent, but we need to figure out a way to get Main Street. That's all the people that say that's what they want in their community. We need to give them a pathway to support that so that it's easier. Because as a small developer, we probably spend 50% of our time trying to raise money. And that doesn't leave a lot of time to do the projects that we're really passionate and kind of where, right. our, where our talents are. Then the regulatory side is it's, you know, there's multifacets to it. But first of all, the regulations are set up to create certainty, uh, prescribe outcomes, because everybody's afraid of what could possibly happen, as opposed to, hey, let's experiment. Let's see what could happen. So you prescribe things to a way that you're constantly trying to innovate against uh, old ideas. Um, some of the simple things are like parking. Uh, you know, a lot of places where they're successful, they're just getting rid of parking requirements because you've got a small parcel. You want to fill it up with use. You don't want to put half and dedicate half of it to parking. Um, land use, allowing more mixed use and allowing form-based uh, buildings as opposed to prescribing the use, which drives the form, describe the form that you want, build to the street, you know, address the street properly. Um, uh, approval process. Uh, first of all, getting the fees. So a lot of communities now <clears throat> are on a cost recovery system where the process of approvals has to pay for the department. So they would much rather spend their time on big projects because they pay more fees and they require, therefore, less work per dollar of fee collected versus small projects. And then lay, throw in their adaptive reuse and historic preservation projects. There are a lot more work because you've got to figure out ways to get around code. That are out of, that don't comply with the building and trying to preserve. So, figuring out a fee structure that really relates to small. Um, and then one of the really interesting things that we we saw Phoenix, Arizona, which you would not think is a leader in adaptive reuse, but they have actually written some codes and have created two things. They've created grant programs for smaller buildings to adaptively reuse that they actually provide some money for that. But more importantly, they've created this thing called the Office of Customer Advocacy, where if I'm a small developer, I show up at that desk and they assign one person to me to help me navigate the entire labyrinth of all the approvals that I need to go through and become my advocate and my champion. So I'm not, you know, this individual with a 10,000 square foot, you know, strip center that I'm trying to convert into something really meaningful and valuable for the neighborhood and having to run to, you know, 15 departments, they're helping me figure that out. They're helping navigate and clear the decks. And that kind of ombudsman approach, I think is really, really important for the small developer because you can, you, you don't have the time to hire the, you don't have the time or the money to hire attorneys, to hire engineers. You're doing it all yourself and you need a clearer path to get there quicker. I think those are like excellent takeaways. Perhaps there's some policymakers listening. I know that there often are um, who can pick those up and run with them. Um, let's uh, take a break here, come back, talk about maybe some 
success, uh, you know, what, what, what are sort of common themes for uh, success in this field? Um, and then talk about the next forum for small scale developers and what you're working on now. And we'll do that right here in PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast today. We're excited to be joined by Jim Hyde, author of Building Small, a toolkit for real estate entrepreneurs, civic leaders, and great communities. We've been talking all about what got him into this line of work, how you do small development, and what the book identified and his work has identified as the real barriers to this and what could be done to fix some of that. I'm curious, you know, are, is there is there something that when it comes to, say, a preservation group or an individual is, is thinking about tackling a project or promoting a project or advocating for something, when you look at small scale development, are there certain things that pop out at you about a project where you're like, that one's going to succeed and this one isn't? Are there markers that you can look for or is it really kind of all over the place? Uh, that's a great question. And I don't know if there's a, I mean, back up a second and talk about like what defines small, because I think that's really important. And the, mm -hmm. the, we've gone into it in more detail in the book, but instead of writing a singular definition, provided what we call the 10 hallmarks of small. But the first thing is to say that it's not a quantitative, it's not about square feet, it's not about dollars, it's really about the attitude of the developer. And the shorthand that I use is somebody who is committed to building community instead of commodity. So they really see real estate development as the vehicle by which they increase uh, the vitality and the connectedness of people in the community. So it's not about, oh, I'm going to build this and I'm going to get X return. It's I really want to figure out a way to catalyze reinvestment in this neighborhood, or I really see this important opportunity that's not being utilized. And I want to, I want to bring that to life. And you do that through real estate development, and then it has all these spinoff effects. So the markers might be, I mean, the, the common threads are you have people who are heavily emotionally, uh, intellectually and financially invested in the project. And it's why small is important to local economies, because it's not an out-of-town developer that, hey, the market turned on me. I'm just going to fire sale this property and leave. It's like, no, I've got my entire balance sheet tied up in that property that I bought, and I've got to make sure this succeeds. So, you know, we see that kind of commitment that weathers the storm as being really important. Um, I think projects that are, we often talk about small is not uh, build to suit. It's not like, oh, I've got to use it. I'm going to build this purpose built building. It's uh, we were just down in San Antonio and Bill Schoen, who uh, was the visionary and uh, developer of the Pearl District. But he talked about um, uh, loose fit, long life. And this idea that, you know, these buildings are vessels 
for a lot of things to occur over time. And so a lot of adaptability, a lot of evolutionary attitudes. So not getting too tied down with a specific program, but creating you know a highly flexible format that you can evolve as you figure out what's really working for the community and or as markets change. And, it, and it's funny you say that because, I mean, that sort of triggers in the mind we can all think of examples probably in our communities where because the, the the use was too prescribed, there's no real way to reuse the structure um, or it just is it's, uh, you know, designed to fall apart and then in 30 years be torn down. And that yeah. that kind of stuff is actually what seems to kill communities is too prescribed in its in what what it what it's supposed to be. And these older buildings are, are so so adaptable. Um, but then, you know, there, there are certain types of modern, more modern structures where it's just you know, how else do you reuse uh, the Sheets gas station or something like that, you know? Right. No, it's a really good point. It goes back to your question earlier about, you know, like, what are some of the things you can do? And it's one of my big concerns, the highly prescriptive nature of so many approvals, because people are so afraid of experimentation and evolution, that by the time you finally run the gauntlet of approvals, you're stuck with something that no longer meets what the market, you know, is looking for. And so the ability to create adaptability and flexibility around the principles of good design, I mean, just street level transparency, uh, you know, interest, variety, uh, good scale, good materiality, all of those things seems to get lost in the discussion of trying to prescribe the outcome. So, And sometimes that's not even a part of the conversation. You know, I live in a community where it's basically, it's, hey, if it's in the zoning, you build it. And yeah. uh, there's really no conversation about design at all. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's because I think, I, I, unfortunately, I think we don't have a lot of people who are trained in um, urban design, they're trained in how to administer policies and programs and prescriptive codes. And therefore, we're not, like you said, we're not focusing on the right part of the conversation. So interesting. So um, you've got the book, uh, you've got um, this forum. So let's talk a little bit about the forum. Um, and then maybe talk about how historic property developers can get engaged in that too. But when is the next forum? Um, how do people get engaged? Is there a way to stay engaged outside of the, the in-person get-togethers? And you said it came out of, sort of grew out of ULI, but but where is it and where are you meeting next? Yeah. So uh, we just finished our 17th one. We typically do one in the spring and one in the fall. We try to do East Coast, West Coast, Midwest or Heartland. Um, and so this next one will be November 6th through 8th in Nashville, Tennessee. So we're really excited about going there. So our last one was in San Antonio. It's typically about a three day program. Uh, group attendance is very intimate. It's about 80 people. And so you really build a strong connection to people in the room and people like yourselves. And I think it's one of the things that I hear most from people that have come is like, I, I feel like I finally found my tribe after going to all of these different conferences where they're talking about stuff that's sort of relevant. This is like super relevant. And the programming is a lot of tours and case studies, as well as panel discussions about uh, development specific to this kind of small genre. So for people that are interested in this space, um, they always walk away with both a lot of tools and specific skills, but also I think just 
a network of other people like themselves, kind of working as entrepreneurs, maybe working by themselves, uh, that they can pick up the phone and call. So I have a long list of people now when I'm doing a deal, it's like sending the performer, hey, take a look at this, what did I miss? So it, it really creates this organic uh, support system that I think is really important. And um, how do people get engaged if they want to, you know, come in November yeah, so or they, they want to so, learn more about it? Yeah. So the easiest thing, uh, you know, is is my website, uh, jhide.com. Um, there is a page on there called, and I this is under the banner of the initiative to make small big. Um, and there's a whole page there where you can find the book, you can sign up for the forums, advance notice of the forums. And then I'm going to be launching later this year, a new program called Small Coach which is based on an entrepreneurial coaching program that I've been a part of as a coachee, not as the coach, um, and trying to intersect what it is to be an entrepreneur with this idea of small development. So part practical skills and part life skills of how do you navigate um, the world of development. And so I feel like people listening are probably interested. What are you working on now? You uh, wrote a book, you host conferences, you do all this kind of stuff. Do you have a small deal happening as we speak? Yeah, I just finished a, a adaptive reuse of an old bank into a co-working space. So I actually started the operating company and run the operating company and then lease it from the space that, that I built out. And it's uh, we opened 60 days before COVID. So it's been a very interesting ride to see how that's worked out. But um, a great testament to this idea of loose fit and long life, because a lot of things that I couldn't afford to build out that I had in the plans. And I'm so glad I didn't, because when COVID hit, I was able to adapt and pivot and move stuff around. And it really worked super well. And then I just finished an eight unit uh, cottage court um, that uh, pleased to say we just won a bunch of national awards for a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but really interesting little infill project, all detached homes. 10 units per acre on a little 1.2 acre site uh, with accessory dwelling units and everything else. Uh, pretty cool, pretty cool design. And then right now I'm kind of embarking on raising capital for uh, a mixed use project uh, in my town here. It's an old half acre gas station. It's one of the classic small development projects. Yeah, 100% corner with a 1960s gas station on it that's been sitting vacant for a long time. So pretty anxious to get that one, uh, get that one under contract and going. Complete with the underground storage tanks? Uh, it's gone, actually. All of that is gone. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Very, very lucky. Um, so uh, before we go, we always ask everybody if they have a favorite historic place or site. Yeah, well, I, you sent me that last night. And I was thinking about it. I mean, I have a lot of them. So my daughter just graduated from College of Charleston. So as a place, you know, city of Charleston, and not only because of its historic nature uh, and its long successful history with preservation, but I think how well they have integrated new contemporary designs into the fabric. So the fabric is super strong. The, it reeks of history and extraordinarily architecture, but then they've also been very good about figuring out ways to, you know, not not just stop in time, but actually evolve. And I think the place that's right behind that then is Savannah. I was there uh, at the same time we were in Charleston, and I was amazed after going there for years. I feel like Savannah's at the tipping point where all of its preservation has been great, but they're finally letting, breathing new life into some of the infill. And there's some very cool, interesting projects going on that are really starting to round out the historic fabric in a, in a really meaningful way. So 
Cool. Well, two great places with some good infill stories. It's been fun having you on. Looking forward to hearing more from you. Um, and uh, maybe we can highlight the work that happens at the convening at some point in the future as well. Um, and again, the in the show notes uh, will be a link to Jim's website as well as um, the book. So you can pick it up and learn a little something along the way. Um and uh, get involved in small-scale development in a big way. So thanks so much for joining us today, Jim. Thank you, Nick. Real pleasure. Really fun to do this. Look forward to what people have to say after it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.